Hey, hey, Housers, it's Michael Braithwaite here, your host from Bluedor, and you are listening to On The Way Home. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Bluedor with our partners at the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Uh, listen, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness has their conference up and ready to go. You should register. It's happening in the fall. Uh, register now for early bird pricing. You don't want to miss it. Uh, the best and the brightest from around the world all come together. Uh, great things happen at that conference. So check it out at caeh.ca uh, as well. All the wonderful things they're doing around training and other pieces at the Canadian Alliance at Homelessness. And as well, go to bluedor.ca and check out the great work my team is doing there. Our construction social enterprise construct, our new land trust model. Uh, all the different programs we're running there to help our most vulnerable across York Region. Check those out. I am so excited for you to join today's uh, episode. Uh, quite often when you go to a funder and say, we're looking for some funding, their first question is, show me the data. Uh, so I love having researchers on the show. And today we have uh, Mallory um, Van Meter and Jacqueline White, two researchers from the U.S. who are doing work around family natural supports. And really what they're looking at is, uh, we talk a lot about today, um, housing not being enough, is that connectiveness to people. Uh, and often for youth, you know, we have the host homes model where you put uh, a young person in a stranger's home and they have the best of intentions and it's awesome and they stay there rather than stay in a shelter. But how many youth, you know, would be better served if it was someone they knew, someone they identify as family or someone they care about, someone that cares about them. And is that possible? So they did this awesome research report called Strengthening the Village. And it really talks about uh, what are the barriers stopping this from happening. And sometimes it might be that uh, a young person would stay with their grandmother, but maybe that grandmother in that building isn't allowed to have visitors stay longer than a certain amount of time. Um, maybe there's a financial burden of having someone else in the house. So different barriers to that happening. How can we take away these barriers? How can we look at maybe it's a win-win for the grandmother uh, and that individual? Can they work with a landlord to uh, take a look at the rules and see if, if they can be changed so this can work? Because that person has a connection there. And it could be an important, very important tool in preventing homelessness. Um, and so we have this great conversation all around that and the work they're doing, how they got there, what the results are, what the hopes are for the future. Take a listen. Uh, if you're really curious about homelessness prevention and some great data that can actually work in every area of youth homelessness uh, where you can lend this kind of thought process to it, uh, you won't regret it. It was an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think you will too. Jacqueline and Mallory, so happy to have you here to discuss this very important and awesome work that you've done and you continue to do. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Michael. We, we ask the same question for everyone because you know I think it's a personal question to people because it means something a little different. There's similar themes along the way. And that question is, uh, what is home or what does home mean to you? And I've asked the question about 200 times. You think I'd get it right. Uh, and so we're going to start with Jacqueline and then go to Mallory. Okay. Um, yeah. Home for me, um, it's where my people are. It's a sense of really profound belonging. <clears throat> I, I guess I, I subscribe to the Robert Frost poem that says um, home is place 
where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. So yeah, it's your people, you belong there. That is awesome. We've never had Robert Frost quoted ever on this podcast. That's the first, and that is terrific. Uh, Mallory, how about yourself? Sure. Um, I think for me, when I think of home, I think of the memories and the things that we do together with people we care about to bring space alive. So things like cooking food, eating meals together, um, making art, having difficult conversations, so all of those things, the, the sort of the stuff of living um, and shared living is what I think of when I think of home. Beautifully said, both, both amazing. Uh, that's great. And both are unique too. So thank you for that. Here's something that's never mentioned when I ask that question. No one ever talks about the four walls and a roof because home is much more than that. Uh, we always like to learn a little bit about our guests before we get rolling and talk about the awesome stuff you're doing. Um, so we want to learn a little bit about your journey. So Mallory, we'll start with you and then we'll go to Jacqueline. Sure. Yeah. So um, I first started doing work related to youth homelessness when I was an undergrad in Chicago. Um, I spent some time in community with folks at the Broadway Youth Center, um, which is on the north side. Um, and they taught me a lot about the problem of youth homelessness and also the resilience of the young people who faced that challenge. Um, and I went on to work at Chapin Hall at the University of Chicago, looking um, at stories of youth from across the country in the US um, through the Voices of Youth Count initiative. Um, and that was also an eye opener because I started to connect the dots between the challenges that youth face and the challenges that their families and communities face um, and see the larger picture of what was at the root of youth housing instability. And then I am now in a PhD program at the University of Wisconsin, where I'm continuing to dive into these issues um, with a particular focus on the role that family writ large um, and community have in the lives of young people who are experiencing housing instability. So that's what brings me to this work. Yeah, and, and for me, um, my, my commitment to homelessness and radically reimagining how we address youth homelessness is rooted in my personal experience. I actually, this was a couple decades ago, um, I was a host in a program that I have subsequently learned to identify as a stranger match program in which community volunteers offer to um, provide a place to stay and a caring presence for young people who they've never met before. And so when I first thought about wanting to um, scale up and do more to help youth facing homelessness, I thought about that experience and thought, oh, you know, we just need to scale that up and get more people to come forward and be hosts and you know, this, this, this would really, could really make a difference. I found out pretty quickly that it's really hard to find people who will say, oh, sure, I have an extra bedroom. You're a traumatized young person. Here's the key to my house. Come on in. Yeah, it just, it's not a common, it's not a common, um, it's hard to find people who are willing to do that. And yet, 
there are all kinds of people who are informally hosting young people who they already know. It's their, it's their um, daughter's best friend. It's the neighbor kid. It's their, you know, their cousin's kid. That's happening all the time. And so that was the pivot, a pretty big pivot to make, um, to really uh, look at a solution that can um, be really scalable in addressing youth homelessness. So we'll talk more about that. Amazing, thank you both for uh, sharing. Uh, and you're so right. Um, when I worked, I worked with a group uh, called 360 Kids in uh, York region and uh, just north of Toronto. And we did a host homes program uh, that was transported over from the UK uh, called Night Stop. Right? And so, so I'm familiar with what you're saying is finding hosts very difficult. Um, and what you're saying makes total sense. And we are going to discuss that in full. I, so we want to talk a little bit about uh, in our sector, quite often you hear the term family and natural supports. Uh, FNS, but for, for those individuals who may not be familiar with that, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, what is it and why does it matter to youth experiencing homelessness? And I think we'll go to Mallory for this one. Yeah. Um, you know, this project that we're going to be talking about is under the banner Strengthening the Village. And that comes from that sort of phrase, it takes a village to raise a child, right? Um, and so when we say that, family and natural supports are that village, right? It's the, the people who show up for you, um, even when things are really hard. Um, and when we say family and family and natural supports, like I sort of referenced earlier, we're also thinking about not just the family that you were born into, but also the family that you choose and the people that you choose to call family. And that's particularly important when we're talking about youth facing homelessness, many of whom identify as LGBTQ, two-spirit um, plus. And so um, uh, family and natural supports uh, is sort of, I would say Canada has been a huge um, leader in the space of thinking about um, using, applying this family and natural supports lens, recognizing the importance of family and natural supports, particularly for young people who are unstably housed. Um, it's sort of a pillar of the prevention work that's going on across Canada. Um, and uh, so, you know, we drew a lot of inspiration from that in, in our efforts to bring that lens to the U.S. context. Um, you know, I think part of that is because, you know, a lot of the research and the stories that we tell about youth homelessness start from that place of family conflict, disconnection, and that's real. That's, you know, that is a really important and big part of the story of how young people become unstably housed. Um, but at the same time, how do we hold on to the, the fact that young people also have people <laughs> in their lives who care about them? Um, and they not only have those people who support them, but, um, but they matter to the young person. The, the youth prioritize those relationships um, and, they, and they make a difference. I mean, we have a ton of research to, to suggest that 
you know, having those connections, those family and natural supports actually result in better outcomes in terms of well-being, housing stability, um, and all sorts of things. So it's just critical that, that we, we shine a light on this approach and, and sort of not just think of it as a uh, one approach among many to addressing youth homelessness, but sort of part of all, every intervention that we use, right? So when you, whether you're doing shelter-based intervention, transitional housing, rapid rehousing, host homes, um, you know, you name it. I think that, you know, figuring out how, how are you working towards family and natural supports in that space is really critical. Um, Jacqueline, I don't know if you wanted to, to speak to the, the piece around permanent connection and, you know, that, how that happens here in the U.S. as well as part of the conversation. Yeah, sure, sure. So, yeah, bringing an international perspective to the podcast here, since we're based in the, we're based in the U.S., that the language family and natural supports isn't as big in the U.S. What we have are... Um, the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness has identified four core outcomes for ending youth homelessness. Stable housing, something they call permanent connections, um, education employment, so you need to, either need to be in school or have a job, and social emotional well-being. So there is a framework for a holistic response um, in, in the U.S. And I think um, that I love and that doesn't always get as full of a, uh, I don't know, traction as might be ideal. So I think, I think a lot of times the focus gets, gets on the stable, the stable housing and the education and employment. And actually when we talk with young people and some research from Chapin Hall has, has shown that as well, um, what they say of the four federal outcomes, they say what, what, what is most important to them? Permanent connections, social, emotional well-being. They want to feel connected and they want to feel, um, they want to feel good, right? And so the question really then becomes how do we create a system that really centers that need? If we are saying we want to listen to the young people um, and this is what they're saying, we need to really look at how to build a system that centers that that need that they have. So it's really a pushback on what on the Maslow's pyramid, which gets cited a lot. That we need to address um, what people might call basic needs: food, clothing, shelter, before we address what are considered higher level needs, and yet. I mean, I think of a young person I spoke with once who said, you know, when I was couch hopping, I would have rather have had someone care about me than have a place to stay. So, you know, we are, human beings are profoundly social animals. We, we need, we crave, we need, we thrive in connection. Yeah. It, it, it make, makes total sense. All right. So, so take a shelter situation, right? And I've, I always learn, I try and learn through uh, the many failures that I've had or been part of, um, where you take a shelter situation, we have a men's shelter. So you take, 
uh, 30 dudes. We put them all together for four months. And then they've got people that care about them, staff that are there. You don't come back at night. Someone wants to know where have you been? Are you okay? Everything's fine. You know, you got buddies there. You got this little community, right? You said that you're connected. And same thing with youth, right? When you have youth shelters, yeah, connect. I know, you know, I might have known people through foster care, whatever. This is my community. Then we say our, our kind of thing is, all right, we're going to put you in housing. We'll put you in this house on your own. No one cares whether you come and go, right? No one's checking in on you. No one can Like, there's no... And then so two months later, they're back in the shelter. You're like, what happened? And we like worked so hard to find that affordable housing for you. But that connectedness that you're talking about is huge. We do, The work is not over when you throw four walls and a roof over someone. There has to be that sense of connectivity. Uh, so I love what you're saying. And we know that in Canada, anyways, when uh, some of the best research that uh, the observatory in a way home Canada did was in 2017, uh, they did a big survey with youth nationally and 80% of youth, I think the left, that experienced homelessness for the first time said it was due to family breakdown, right? So that, that connected to, but why do so many people return and stay? And then I think also child welfare, right? When, when kids are taken into care, uh, most child welfare agencies really try hard to connect them back to family, how can you do that? Well, but that's what they know. And a lot of kids, if you ask them, even when it's really bad at home, maybe they shouldn't, but they'll say, that's where I want to go because I'm connected. Those are my people, right? Or some family member, someone that has a link to the family or that you know, you're right. Um, we build these little communities and then sometimes uh, through the best of intentions, we tear them apart and, and it really uh, throws the system off. So let's talk a little bit about um, your most recent collaboration, and it's called Strengthening the Village. How did it come about? What's its focus? Uh, Jacqueline, this time we'll start with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I just want to, just in terms of the conversation you were just having there, um, really make a, a distinction when we're talking about natural supports. We're, we're, we're talking about um, you know, unpaid connections, Right. The people, because I think a lot of uh, um, paid providers, there's there's an expiration date on that relationship, right? Um, they're not going to be where you go for the holidays, for the next twenty years. <laughs> that's not that's not that's not where that you're going to go. And yet, even if there is family breakdown, um, that doesn't mean that there aren't in the immediate family, it doesn't mean that there aren't other people in the young person's circle who, who are caring for them, so and care about them. Yeah. So the new, so the new, the new project, the the genesis of that is really um, Mallory and I have collaborated on um, some other work previously, and with a, with a, some other really terrific researchers, and the the basis of that was really this this question about looking at taking a closer look at couch hopping right i think that there's an assumption in the youth homeless field often that if a young person is couch hopping that's that's a dangerous situation if they're unstably housed they're at risk for exploitation we don't want them there and it's absolutely true that sometimes that is the case and we we wanted to really say is that really always the case though you know i know if there had been something wrong at, at my house and I needed to find a place to stay, I would have gone to my best friend Vicky's house and I would have been fine at Vicky's house. So, you know, let's, let's really look at 
you know, where are these young people staying and what are those relationships like? So um, we did a series of interviews with, with youth and with what we would call informal hosts. And the criteria was that they, they had to be at least a 10 year difference between the youth and the host. They had to have been there for at least three weeks and there couldn't be a sexual or romantic relationship. So trying to look at, you know, where there might be some possibilities for stability. And so the first paper, um, this is a peer reviewed and, and it is on the um, Close Knit website. I'm the uh, founder and former executive director of Close Knit. So closeknit.us is one place you can find it. Um, the first paper was called Beyond a Bed. And, and it, as the, and it was about the, what we found is that these relationships were about much more than just um, food and shelter. It what they were um, overwhelmingly what both youth and hosts said, said. These were meaningful relationships, and even talked about them in terms of family. And even sometimes for the youth, the family I never really had. So these are you know profoundly meaningful relationships. The second paper, um, again peer reviewed that we published is called The Cost of Caring, which also kind of tips you to what we're talking about, that, you know, having another person in your house, it's expensive, right? They're caught, they're, there's, there's costs, financial costs associated with that. And what we found in particular was that if you are a homeowner, you are in a much better place to provide stability and, and extend generosity than if you are a renter. And that has um, real race equity issues. In the, in the U.S., I can again speak from the U.S. context, um, redlining historically has prevented um, home ownership for a lot of black indigenous people of color. And so there's, a, there's a, just a glaring um, racial inequity in home ownership rates. So looking at the challenges that renters face is, a, like I said, a really deep race equity issue. Uh, I, I, I'd like to just share one interview that, um, that I was fortunate to be able to do. We'll call, we'll call the, the person Gerilyn. I'm doing the air quotes here. Um, so Gerilyn was an African-American, disabled wife, mother, um, she had helped raise her nephew and then uh, lost track of him, tracked him down on Facebook, found out he was living in a gang area. Um, she was like, I, you know, I don't, I don't want you to be there. She did what any caring auntie would do. She said, you come stay with me. Right. The problem was that she lived in subsidized housing. There was a restriction on her lease uh, that said you can only have a guest for two weeks. So Gerilyn said it was a really good thing that her nephew worked the late shift at McDonald's because that meant he could sneak in after hours so the neighbors wouldn't know that he was actually staying there. And I just want to say again, this is a young African-American man. So, you know, he's basically sneaking around like a criminal not having done anything wrong, just wanting, you know, to stay with his auntie who cares about him and loves him and is offering him, you know, to be able to sleep on his couch. 
so you know i was not surprised unfortunately you know for her when she said you know he's he's kind of depressed right um he he can't get mail he doesn't have an address it's hard to imagine a future right and so this this strengthening the village project really starts at that point where we look at people like like um Geraldine, who is who is offering profound hospitality, who is willing to risk her own housing. I mean, how much more of a connection do we want? How much how much more love can you offer than to say, you know, I'm going to risk my own housing because I care this much about you? So, how do we really um, stabilize those relationships and make that uh, a ongoing? Um, safe place for a young person. I also add to that, Jacqueline. Um, I think an important piece of this puzzle is that, you know, prior to this work, we knew that youth, that couch hopping and doubling up were a huge part of youth experiences of housing instability, the, the sort of national survey household survey in the US that was done found that I think half of the young people who reported um, homelessness over the course of the year had at some point been doubled up or couch hopping without another stable place to stay. Um, and there's been a huge push as well in the US to include in federal def definitions of homelessness, youth who are doubled up couch hopping so that they have access to the services that they need. And so, you know, as a result, I think a lot of the focus has been on those risks, like Jacqueline said, on risks and stability without asking the question, what, what, what's causing this instability? Like what's at the root of it, right? And if we start to ask that question, if we know youth have people, these people provide help, these relationships are important, Sometimes youth stay with these caring adults, but right there's these financial challenges. Um, you know, youth are more likely to come from low-income households and backgrounds, more likely to be BIPOC, or so they're people, they're village. These are stressed communities. Um, you know, they've been disinvested. They don't have a ton of resources to share, and despite that, they're sharing their housing. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it then you have to reflect on what is the role of the system then and in like policymakers, service providers. If we start to grapple with this instability as, as sort of a place where we could do better <laughs> to do right by these people and help them care for these young people that they so obviously care about. Um, so I think that that's just another piece of this story um, as well. Yeah, remove, how do we remove those barriers for sure? Quick little interesting thing. You call it couch hopping, Canada. We call it couch surfing. The UK, mm -hmm. they call it sofa surfing. Sofa so. surfing, <laughs> yep. yep. So they, 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 it's much nicer when, when they say it. It's, not. <laughs> um, it's the same thing. Let's talk about there are three main parts of the report. And I think, uh, Mallory, you're going to start us off and talk about one of them. And then Jacqueline will talk about the, uh, the other pieces. 
Yeah, so, so we have one large report um, and it was originally just going to be this one report. <laughs> and then we were like, oh no, we have so much more to talk about. We need to do some, some other pieces to go along with it. But the, the sort of genesis of this was, was for me to look at the research evidence that we have on the role of natural supports, family and natural supports kin in the lives of young people um, and youth facing homelessness. Um, and to use this evidence, um, sort of organize it, put it all in one place and sort of make the case that I think we've been making on the call that like these, um, these supports, these relationships are important and we can do more to, to promote stability when you stay with people they trust in safe and supportive informal shared housing situations. Um, and so, so the report basically tells the story of um, the role of interdependence in young adulthood. So starting from that place, um, I think in the, in the Western context, we often talk a lot about independence, bootstrapping, right? Like youth, the successful transitions to adulthood mean becoming independent, self-sufficient. Um, but in reality, you know, in the U.S., over half of young adults ages 18 to 25 are, are living with their parents, right? And that's just part of how our economic system currently operates. Um, and so regardless how you feel about that, you know, we have to not hold youth to the double standard, you know, saying that like, okay, everyone else is sort of relying on their networks. Interdependence is really important for young adults who are housed stably housed, but for youth who are facing homelessness, we're telling them, okay, you do this program and then you're expected to kind of make it on your own, right? Um, and so when we shift to saying, okay, let's recognize, celebrate and resource youth's community, the village, um, then we can have a different conversation about couch hopping, sofa surfing, <laughs> whatever you wanna call it. Um, and identify situations that could be longer term if necessary, um, that are safe and supportive, right? Um, and once we can identify those, we can then say what supports do the host and the youth need to make that happen? Um, and so that's sort of the next step. Um, but the, the larger report sets up that argument. And then the other two briefs kind of look at specific practice and policy implications of this. Um, larger framework. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Yeah, so so one of the so the, the policy brief, um, you know, it we've been talking about sort of definitions here a little bit, uh, uh, touching in on in different ways. So what do we really talk about? 
when we're when we are wanting to talk about um, in the U.S. context permanent connections, and so there's been there's been some sort of fuzziness about that, and I think really wanting to push folks um, to think about the natural support people, the people who will be in the youth's life long term, as opposed to paid providers who who are, you know, providing wonderful support for the young people, but are not in a position most often to provide, to be there for years to come. Right. And so we want, so, 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 so this policy grief really makes the case that we need to be looking at intergenerational relationships. I think another thing that happens often is there's an idea that the youth will help one another, and they do, of course. And yet, again, when we look at what is normative, um, young adults have older parental figures who they are relying on. And so having some kind of, you know, recognizing the need for intergenerational support for youth facing homelessness is also important. So we, we are really, um, uh, well, Mallory is really looking at, at clarifying so that folks know in the youth homeless sector, when we are wanting to help um, young people build community, how we want to define that community so that they have that long-term support. And then, the, and then the practice brief is really looking more specifically at the host home model and, and looking at a comparison between what I think is the most, the most common, when we say host home, the most common thing that people think about is the um, stranger match model, which also... Um, you know, it fits in our sort of the dominant paradigm that we operate in, um, in the social service sector, which, which has, um, which looks, um, let me start over again. There's a, the, the white savior kind of model. It kind of um, is part of what often happens in, a traditional host home stranger match model. So the people who end up getting recruited are often people like me, white and white and college educated. I, you know, middle, middle class person. And we know that youth facing homelessness, the, it, again, in the U S context, overrepresentation of BIPOC youth, overrepresentation of youth who are, who are poor, Right. And so you often end up with a mismatch, which was true for, for me and my partner when we were hosting. Um, we were white. Our, our, the young woman we were hosting was, was um, Puerto Rican, actually. So, um, and, and yet we're kind of used to operating this way. I think the social service sector you know, we're good-hearted people. We want to help, um, and 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 so making what what to, to really look at making a shift to resourcing chosen family is a really deep 
shift that it, it isn't just sort of like, oh, okay, we'll just start resourcing the people already in the kid's life rather than, you know, finding people. It's a really profound shift. And to really do it, it is um, a transformation um, because of the barriers that many of the people who the young people go to for help are they're underestimated, they're under-resourced, and so that requires system change and policy change in order to really um, provide stability there. It's a very different way of thinking. I cannot say that enough. Yeah, and, and I think like uh, I, I did my master's thesis research on host home programs in the US. Um, and one of the things that came up when I talked to, to folks who were um, doing stranger match hosting was that that cultural mismatch, the feeling that the youth had of like being in a, an Airbnb or a hostel kind of environment um, versus a home, right? Um, and that's not the fault of the hosts. You know, they're working within a system that sort of is outside of them. Um, but, but I think, you know, if we start to think about host home programs as an opportunity for community capacity building, right? Um, not just let's address the housing needs of this youth, right? We're actually building stronger social safety nets, informal social safety nets in communities and directing resources from the public systems to those communities directly. That to me feels like a, a really potentially transformational shift in practice. But like Jacqueline said, that doesn't, um, you know, all of the barriers that we've been talking about, like rental housing restrictions, um, you know, uh, public housing voucher rules and regulations, then you get into questions about, um, you know, if you're helping the host with utility payments or um, other sorts of financial uh, support who are taking in this young person, then suddenly that has implications for their taxes, for um, for their benefits eligibility. Um, and Chapinol actually has a great resource that came out this past year, I think, <laughs> on um, it was on the sort of policy implications uh, of how to design a direct cash transfer program, which is a different context, but a lot of the same sort of um, issues apply if you're thinking about providing financial uh, help to families who are informally or formally hosting young people. Um, so there's ways to work around it, but that's sort of currently not necessarily in the purview of how host home programs operate. Um, so so it is a shift and, and this is just the sort of, it's a brief, it's the beginning of a conversation, right? We're sort of just sending out some seeds and hopefully, um, you know, over the next few years, we can both sort of refine what it would look like to, to, to um, implement this type of intervention and evaluate and see like are our theories about this, the impacts of this on, you know, youth permanent connection, um, you know, does that actually bear out in terms of what we see the impacts on the young people are? Um, Very, very cool. I love, love everything you're saying. It's just, I just think about 
how traumatic it is for a young person to experience homelessness. And then, as you said, you know, despite the best attention of any host, not having any connection, how awkward and weird and strange. And to someone who's already going through one of the most traumatic, if not the most traumatic experience of their lifetime. Um, so, so a couple different questions. I want to know, what are your hopes uh, for this movie forward? You kind of touch on that. Um, and, and is there kind of some uh, kind of light at the end of that tunnel through funding? Yeah, well, I, I'll, I can speak to that. Yeah, because the, right, we got to fund this. And, and ultimately, if you're looking at population level system change, which is what this requires, um, you need to have government funding. And I will say in my conversations with um, policymakers on the, on the state and federal level in the US, the question that I get is, do you have any research on that? So um, I'm really, really pleased to be able to say, well, actually, yes, we do. There is a research basis for this approach. And in terms of what this actually can look like in, in practice, um, we do have some, um, we, we piloted some work in, in this regard. So we have some ideas. And this again is based on what we were hearing when we actually listened to the youth and listened to the hosts. And so um, through philanthropic funding, um, able to do a um, pilot program at Hope for Youth in Anoka, which is which is a little bit north of the Twin Cities. And um, I guess the best way to, to explain that program actually is to tell a story of a young man who was in a situation similar to Geraldine's nephew. He was also a Af young African-American man um, he was only he was staying with his granny and it was in an apartment and granny she got to a point where it's like you know my blood pressure i can't take this you're not supposed to be here there's a two-week guest policy i i i'm gonna just ask you by the end of the month can you find a different place to stay right so he shows up at the drop-in and um you know i think Again, in the U.S. context, there's not a lot of affordable housing. There's not a lot much to offer him, right? It's not like, um, yeah. So uh, Brenda, who was the case coach for this pilot program, Rockstar Cage Case Coach, uh, met with call him Joe, and was able to find out that you know he was he, he was he'd rather have his own place, but he was fine staying with Granny. And so then the issue was, well, is there a way we could talk to the landlord? So uh, Brenda talked with Granny and got her permission. And so she was able to talk with the landlord. And the program basically addressed what landlords want, right? They want their money and they don't want any problems, right? And so... This, the program offered uh, a stipend, so there would be more resources coming into the a monthly. It was modest, $200 US, um, modest stipend. Uh, so there was more stability. 
financial stability in the household, and that could be paid directly to the to the landlord if that was um, what the youth and the host agreed on. They they got to decide how to spend that money, and and then um, you know landlords they don't want any problems, right? And so and this was even more important. Brenda found to landlords than the money was saying, here is my business card. If there is a problem here in this relationship, you are not going to be alone with this. You call me, right? Again, it's this relationship building and it's seeing, you know, the landlord is a human being who is trying to provide a service and um, sometimes needs help, right? So, so in that case, um, she, Brenda was able to convince the landlord um, that, and so Joe was able to continue to stay. And, you know, it was a much less, it really ratcheted down the tension in the relationship to be able to go and live above board. And that is a, a big transition that we um, also see is a lot of the youth really are living under the radar. And so what does it take to bring them above board? And that's one example. So currently um, there's a bill in the, um, in the Minnesota legislature for a $2 million uh, pilot that would look at, at providing resource hubs to provide this kind of support to chosen family hosting arrangements statewide. So fingers crossed that that will, that that will come through. So we're super excited. Yeah, we're all crossing our fingers. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that's exciting to me is that I can see a lot of open doors in current program models, not just host homes, to start thinking about informal shared housing in a different way. Um, so for example, I have some colleagues who are doing work around um, direct cash transfer plus services um, around uh, rapid rehousing. Um, and historically those program models have been very centered on the housing piece, <laughs> um, which is perhaps unsurprising, but, but I think that there's some really clear alignment there to particularly because of the affordable housing crisis that I know is affecting both the US and Canada um, to look at community networks, youth connections as potential affordable housing providers. Um, and um, so I think that that's something that I'm looking forward to being in, in dialogue with folks about um, to try and get this on people's radars. I think it sort of is. <laughs> like, so I think I've, heard, I've talked to some people who are running you know, um, direct cash transfer programs. And I'm like, oh, you know, are any youth using the money to, you know, stay with family or anything? And they're like, oh yeah, we had a couple of young people that like went and stayed with our sister and helped her pay rent. And I'm like, great, okay. So like, is that a formal part of the program? Like, are you actually presenting that option to youth explicitly? And at the moment that's often not happening. It's just that youth are choosing to do that on their own or you know, in some cases. So, so I think that that's a sort of exciting opportunity that I see in the field. Um, I would also add that um, 
I think I sort of referenced it. I'm, I'm for my dissertation research. I'm going to be looking back at the Voices of Youth Count interviews, um, which were with 212 young people in five different communities in the U.S. Um, and I'm basically looking at their stories. They sort of paint the picture of their experience of housing instability um, and, and looking at those periods of time where they were staying with someone informally. Um, and I think this is coming from a place of trying to build a deeper evidence base um, to back up this approach and, and this, this framing um, because I think there's a lot of fear um, about investing in informal shared housing. Um, and I think it's fair because, you know, we do have evidence suggests that some of these situations aren't safe for youth. Um, but what I'm finding is that there is a really big spectrum <laughs> and there's a, there's definitely that section on the one end that it's like not safe, not supportive, um, you know, all sorts of things can go wrong, certainly. Um, but there's also a lot of other stuff like in a gray area and all the way up to like super stable, long-term positive situations that for one reason or another don't work out. And so, so by painting this broader picture, I'm, I'm hoping to um, give a little bit more context to the field so that we can design better interventions and policies to work towards stability in these otherwise positive, safe um, situations. In some cases, that potentially means formalizing the shared housing, right? Um, setting up a leasing agreement, getting them on the lease, or you know, working with a host home program. Um, there's certainly benefits to that as well that can can be be important. But but um, yeah, trying to build an evidence base and also the one other thing to add that's sort of um, I think an important part of this story. That, that is coming out of that work is that overwhelmingly um, informal shared housing is kind of the uh, first step in their journey uh, for young people. It's, it's often the first place they land when they can't stay at home or when they leave their place, like residential placement, foster home, wherever they're staying long-term, often the first place they go is um, someone they know. And so not, although not all of those are good situations, just like I said earlier, there's a wide range of experiences that youth have in that first place that they land. Um, I think if we look at it as a whole, this is a huge opportunity to um, work towards primary prevention and early prevention of youth homelessness, right? If we focus on these situations, um, identifying ones which are safe, and supporting them, I think that will pay huge dividends in terms of preventing deeper end involvement, shelter stays, um, and other forms of uh, uh, harm that youth experience when they have repeated and long-term experiences of housing instability. Oh, no, it's, it's huge in the prevention world. Let's, you know, we be realistic for a moment too, right? We need more housing options, and this is a housing option that provides connections that can work, as you said, that first step in the process as someone who has three adult children at home, because 
of, of the realities, financial realities in life. Everyone should have that option um, to have that connection. Uh, and and I love what you're saying that this this could be a part of all sorts of those cash transfer uh, or any type of housing project that you're doing that we don't currently look at and we should we should get out of our own way. This is incredible work. If people want to check out this work or all the other uh, incredible and impactful work you've been doing, where do they go? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, proud to say that um, Homeless Hub has the Strengthening the Village report. We're always wanting to uh, plug Canada. Um, it, it's on the Chapin Hall website. Um, so please go there. And there's all, and closeknit.us um, also has a, a deeper dive into, well, it has the, the preliminary research that we were talking about and um, a deeper dive into some of the policy issues, for example, the, um, under the radar versus coming above board. What does that look like? There's some other materials like that. And I would be happy to continue this conversation with anyone. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I, you can reach me at uh, jw at jacquelinewhite.net. That's the French spelling of Jacqueline. Um, um, yeah, so. Yep. Yeah, definitely encourage folks to take a look at the report and the briefs. Um, we have some resources linked through there in those reports as well. And uh, CloseNet's website also has some uh, really useful resources for programs that are interested in exploring natural supports approaches to host homes, circle map exercise to help you identify their uh, connections. So um, lots to learn there. Um, you can find me on the Chapin Hall website. Um, that's my bio has uh, all of the work that I'm involved in. Um, and uh, yeah, please connect with me on LinkedIn. If you're interested in being in dialogue, I would love to hear from folks. Yeah, LinkedIn for me too. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you both. This has uh, been just incredible learning experience for us on the podcast. That's why we do this, to share this information, and it's very scalable. Uh, I encourage people to go check out this work and reach out to Jacqueline uh, or Mallory if you have any questions or, or ideas or thoughts. Um, amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. And Mallory, I guess if, if we have you back in the the future, we'll have to call you Dr. Mallory. Is that? That's right. Uh, eventually. <laughs> Thank well, you. Congrats on that. Um, you know, tons of respect for you both uh, for this work. Uh, it is so impactful. And, and as you said, first question you often get asked by funders is show me the data. Why? Show me the proof. And you're doing exactly that. You're making our job easier to prevent and end youth homelessness. And it's so appreciated. Thank you for your time. And you're always welcome when you're doing other impactful work. Come back on the show. We'll see you then. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Take care. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. 
we have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.